This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are. Even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. These days, choices are everywhere. Like, for instance, the milk in your coffee. Would you like it from a cow? A nut? A tree? Everyone wants options. And now your customers have a new option in the way they pay. With PayPal in person. Just generate your unique QR code in the PayPal app for them to scan. And start accepting PayPal in person today. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. podcast i'm honored today to have norman brandon from texas the reason new end original and don't forget shelter um so uh, thanks for joining us norman thank you for having me <laughs> um quick little shelter story. yeah shelter, right? <laughs> Are, did you think i was going to mention them <laughs> well no i mean i it's been so long i sometimes forget <laughs> i mean if you want to get completest about it you can add resurrection and fountainhead you're right. I and actually, I was in 108 for like three months. Too. You were in 108. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, most people actually think that I played on the first 108 record because it looks like I did in terms of the lineup, but I didn't. So. <laughs> I, awesome. I was just playing with the band at that time. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, well, I, we, we will add those in the text after. Um <laughs> It's okay, you don't have to. <laughs> we, we pay by the character, so I might just – I'm just kidding. We don't. Um, um, quick story. I think um, I had the pleasure of making friends with the band Shift while I was in college. Um, I actually ran their unofficial website. Remember when those were hot? Um, and I always dreamed of working at Equal Vision. And funny enough, years later, my dream came true, and I got to work there, um, which is kind of crazy. What was interesting about Shift in that time was Pathos EP was the first non-Krishna release for EVR and I think that's yes from uh, Steve had told me that it was their first non-Krishna band that was interesting and I I, I was like really that's crazy so I think with you being kind of in shelter at the time and the you know Krishna movement and how for you in New York City how did it kind of gel in the New York kind of hardcore punk scene how did it kind of coexist Um, the Krishna thing yeah because obviously it's kind of I think that those kind of worlds kind of converged with it being, you know, hardcore and this Krishna scene. Like maybe it, maybe it didn't I mean, is it? Well, I'll say this, I'll say this. So, okay. By the time the shift came around, actually, I was 
pretty, like, my relation with them was kind of just from hanging in the scene and, like, I lived at Equal Vision when it was just a loft on 24th Street. So, but at that point, I'd already quit Shelter and uh, I was kind of just doing antimatter. Um, but as far as the coexistence goes, I mean, I think that there's something to be said about New York hardcore and the Krishna movement in the sense that it always coexisted in New York. It's kind of, it's kind of breakout like happened. Yeah. Like with shelter in the nineties. Um, and that was kind of when I think straight edge kids first started, um, adopting whether it be the style of wearing, you know, the neck beads or, or actually adopting the, the philosophy or the religion or whatnot. Um, but in New York, I mean, honestly, like, I think that I was, I knew about Hare Krishna's um, in the 80s for as long as I was, you know, from the minute I started going to shows, really, actually. Um, I mean, obviously, the Chromex, right? That's the big mm-hmm. one that everyone talks about. But, I mean, the first singer for Agnostic Front, John Watson, he was a Hare Krishna. His name was Jayanta Das. Um, you know, uh, there were, there's this old guy whose name was Dave, who was like this old early eighties hardcore guy who became Kasuba Das. Um, there was this other skinhead guy in the scene, Mark, and he became Mana Mohan Das. So, you know, there were a lot of hardcore, like, and not just hardcore kids, because these weren't straight edge kids. I think it's important to make the distinction also that in the eighties, a lot of the people who were attracted to the Harry Christian movement were straight up like skinheads and like street kids. Um, and so, and I don't know what the connection was or what that, that attraction was. I, I guess I understood it from the straight edge kid perspective. Oh, here's this, you know, religion that's vegetarian and that doesn't do drugs. And, you know, I mean, it, it's kind of just like straight edge with God, but like, um, but in the eighties, it was, it was very much a different thing. Um, probably my only guess is that the Krishnas were part of the fabric of the Lower East Side just as much as the skinheads were just as much as the drug gangs were. And, um, kind of everything was accepted kind of, I mean, New York city, it's like everyone walks by you, every shape, color and creed. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously for us, like for like hardcore kids and stuff, like there wasn't, um, it wasn't like we were freaked out by their shaved heads or anything like that. Um, and I remember if anything, this is a, a huge connection is that on Sundays when there would be like CDs, matinees, they would be in Tompkins Square Park giving out free food. And so a lot of times, you know, hardcore kids would wander to Tompkins Square Park and get free food, um, which, you know, we were all broke and hungry. So that was my first exposure uh, to the Christmas was actually in Tompkins Square Park um, eating. So, so yeah, so actually by the 90s, I would say like that exposure, uh, you know, I was already kind of, um, not, I don't know. I wasn't jaded about it, but it was like a different kind of thing. Like it wasn't. I didn't. I didn't see it as a bizarre, uh, you know, confluence of of cultural um, differences or something. And then with like the EVR loft and a lot of those early, early releases were Krishna related. It obviously it didn't matter if those bands were on those tours or if it wasn't even related kind of thing. It was all. It all kind of played together because it wasn't a big thing because it'd been there. Correct. 
Yeah, I mean, I would say so. I think that, you know, also, when Equal Vision started, it was Ray's label. And for him, you know, Equal Vision was like Shelter. It was kind of a missionary project. He was, you know, a, a fired-up Hare Krishna devotee who wanted to spread the word. Um, and when Steve took over, I think it was just a different thing. I mean, yeah, that was part of it. But I think Steve was also, you know, newly married and actually kind of moving into like this, you know, the life of, okay, now I have to somehow, I have a family now, so I have yeah. to somehow support my family and I have this record label, so I should do it this way. So I think the the mission didn't change, but it had to be refined in order for him to kind of, uh, you know, live. What's kind of cool too is he's actually started up a Krishna-only subset of Equal Vision. Um, recently, right. um, which I right. love. I was like, the, how full circle, you know, like you've, you've got your kids going and everything's kind of, and then you can kind of go back and help again. Now he has it all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Steve. <laughs> there could be a whole podcast about Steve. I love him. Um, sure. um, any, you know, I guess you've, I was reading another interview and you were kind of talking about music and I really loved, um, you know, kind of what you said. It was more about the community and the family and the music was the yeah. ritual. I really loved hearing that. And I think with, with communities and touring and with all the te- technology that we have now, like everyone's holding up phones and, you know, you're instantly hearing about a band beforehand and you didn't have to drive to New Haven to hear them, um, to even hear a song. Do you feel that that connection can happen again as closely as, you know, a friend that you have online now? I just, I, I struggle with it. Um, because I mean, yeah, I, I feel no. that it, no. like, well, here's the thing. I mean, it's just got to, it's just going to be different. Mm-hmm. There's no two ways around it, but I don't believe in like, you know, kind of like judging it by gradations of better or worse. It's, it's just, just different. different. Yeah. So like, you know, one thing that the internet kind of took away, uh, from music scenes in general, I think is a chance for regionality to develop. Um, in this kind of organic and sustained way. So the way that, like, in the 80s, let's say, or even early 90s, when we used to talk about a DC band, you kind of knew what their aesthetic was musically, what their aesthetic was in terms of how they dressed, how they acted at shows. It was different. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you talked about, uh, they're, oh, they're from Southern California, you kind of had an idea what, that looked like, what that sounded like. New York, um, I feel like that that area, or, that, or sorry, that era where um, the Texas The Reason was in, I remember there was this kind of like talk when all the bands were getting signed, you know, at that point, everybody had signed. It was like Quicksand and Sick of It All and Orange Nine and Into Another had signed and we were about to sign and, uh, and I remember people not necessarily in the, even in the industry but even in the scene talking about how this was like a New York moment, like New York was happening. And, um, and not that all five of those bands sound the same, which we know we probably don't at all. Um, but at the same time, you could listen to those bands that I just mentioned and kind of find the thread or the aesthetic that kind of like kept them together. So what happens is, is with the internet, um, now it's like if a show happens in New York, you know, someone in Singapore can watch it like 10 minutes later on YouTube 
and incorporate whatever it is that they want to incorporate into what they do. Uh, and while I don't necessarily think that that's bad, it does kind of create this sort of more of an international aesthetic as opposed to these kind of like strictly regional aesthetics that used to exist um, much more uh, identifiably back in, you know, before the internet. I mean, a band could literally have one show and everyone know their songs when they go out on tour. Yeah, but not just their songs, like their whole being. Yeah, whole you're right, you're right, style, you're right. Everything. Like everything. What they look everything. like. I remember yeah. going to shows and this, uh, I get made fun of this a lot from my best friend and this is totally embarrassing. I was trying to get to, in touch with Promise Ring to do an ID for my radio station in college. They were on tour mm-hmm. with Jets to Brazil. I went up to Blake Schwarzenbach, had no idea who it was, and asked him where Promise Ring was. I, my buddy was like, did you realize how pissed he was? I was like, why? Who was that? He was like, that's Blake. I was like, shit. <laughs> I probably don't think he cared that much. But still, but, like, okay. he, he seemed annoyed. He seemed annoyed. So obviously, me being what eighteen or you know had no idea and completely flustered. But it was just fun. I didn't know what he looked like. You know. <laughs> well, you know, but that's that, that's a, that's a good example of somebody who you know, like, I mean, he's changed obviously a lot. He's been in New York for a long time now. But you know, when he came to New York. Uh, you know, to me, he still had this very, like, San Francisco, East Bay epic, or not epic, but aesthetic, that um, that was kind of, you know, it was a part of a place and a time. Uh, and those are the types of things that I'm, I'm interested in. I remember I, I did an interview with Ian MacKay um, for Antimatter in, like, 94, and he was talking about that. Um, he was talking about it in terms of how people danced at shows. And I thought that that was a really interesting thing because it was something that I was conscious of but never really articulated. That, you know, the way we danced in New York was different than the way they danced in Connecticut, was different than the way they danced in Minneapolis, in D.C., in Southern California. And now you can go on tour and everybody's going to do the exact same thing. The crowds will pretty much look the same. There's nothing that's unique to that city. Uh, And so... That's, yeah, I mean, I do think that that's kind of a new development in terms, especially in terms of like underground and kind of like punk and punk related scenes. This is, I don't know if this is an analogy or something similar, but I see that with with sports and and players' routines. Like younger players are emulating a player's like batting stance because they saw it on TV. Um, I feel terrible that this is completely lost on me. No, it's fine. It's fine. I there's I just I was actually just watching some baseball and I realized that so many kids copy what that is and it's something from, you know, TV or something like that. Um for me, well, that is, really... you know, I mean obviously, yeah, when when people saw Smells Like Teen Spirit video for the first time, uh, you know, that was a lot of people's kind of um impression of what you're supposed to do at a show. Um, even though it was in the bleachers that, you know, will carry on or, you know, carry into the show. And, you know, my friend Pete was actually in that video. Oh, nice. He's, like a, he's an old hardcore kid. And there are a lot of old hardcore kids in that video. <laughs> so it's kind of, um, I mean, it's funny to me. Uh, but at the same time, like, you know, I'm not one of those people who just kind of like complains, like, 
oh, it was so much better back in the day. Like, I don't really care about that. Um, I think that what's happening now is new and exciting for someone, and I want it to be new and exciting for them. I want them to get everything they want out of the experience and be happy and psyched um, and make, and hopefully, you know, somewhere in the mix, there's going to be this, like, new innovation that's going to really, like, you know, inspire people. Well, that's what's so exciting about me, I think, being in the music industry now, too. It's like there could be something that turns everything on their head tomorrow. And sure. there isn't the fat cats in the corners anymore. It's weeded out so many different people um, that have, you know, in it for the different reasons. And I think it's the it's the smarter person today. It's the person that's uh, able to adjust. Um, and it's not this kind of send the record to radio and it's, you know, kids are making these changes and you can, re- it just seems like more people have a voice. Um, right. I, so. and yeah, and there is that, there's also just, I think, uh, you know, there is no more, like if there were ever like a model for how to do something, I don't really think there is one anymore. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of like how to get heard or how to, make it or whatever like if they're you know and i think that that's why most record labels major and indie alike are are kind of just swimming around going well we can try this and Mm -hmm. and just throwing things at the wall and just hoping that it works once and maybe more than once if they're you know they're lucky uh but you know so that has I, i do think we're still like in the industry in this like transition period that I, I really don't see the end of. That's what's crazy about it. Yeah, it's just every six months something different's going to be happening off of it's that. It's just yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which absolutely. Is fun. Yeah. Like, uh, and we thought we thought we were safe with MySpace. We thought like, okay, this is it. This is the new zone. <laughs> And then that tanked, and it was like, oh man, that <laughs> was. I thought Makeout Club was it. That's 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 what I thought. <laughs> I don't know what Makeout Club was. Makeout Club was good for, except for like just talking shit. On it was pretty internet. much, yeah, it's pretty much talking shit. Yeah, that's pretty much what it was. <laughs> All right. I feel like I missed something. No, no, you were right on. Um, right. I, I want to talk about the antimatter zine. Um, it was a huge inspiration for me when I did like a cool little crappy zine in high school. Um, and now even this podcast, I mean, I just think the, when the book came out, um, and just the bands that interviewed, it was such a who's who of that time. Um, orange nine into another jaw box, rage against the machine, quicksand lifetime, Sam, I am Snapcase. would go on and on. And I think, um, it was more of you were like talking to your friends about experiences and less about, um, you know, the music itself, kind of just the experience itself um, of what was right. happening. And um, what kind of resonated... Well, I think that had something to do with what you mentioned before. Like, because I kind of, I mean, totally honestly, like, I lost interest in a lot of music at a certain time. Like, kind of at the same time that I started Antimatter. Uh, ironically, <laughs> it was like, um, I don't know what it was. I, there was just something where I was just, I was kind of turned off to music and I really was kind of more into like the ideas of music. I was really more into the ideas of into another, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. uh, of a band like that existing in our subculture uh, or like, you know, just the general sea change of musicality that was happening in that time that interested me it wasn't necessarily like one particular band or any of these particular bands, although I'm not saying I didn't like these bands. I liked them. Um, so you were already I, jaded. 
Of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, like I, it's it was hard. I think for a lot of people at that time, uh, especially because it felt it did feel like the scene changed overnight. Like it felt like, you know, you you had straight up traditional hardcore, and then one day in May 1990, everything changed. <laughs> and people were just kind of finding themselves in the new scene, I guess, and scenes even. There were like, it was the first sense that hardcore might get uh, bifurcated into like, you know, hardcores. Um, and, and that took a while to happen. It's, I believe that it has happened since. But um, we were kind of in that middle zone where we were just holding on to each other tight, you know? It, in other words, so for Into Another to play with Split Lip, it wouldn't, that would have happened. It wouldn't have been a big deal. Uh, and, you know, for Snapcase to play with uh, Jawbox, if that had ever happened, uh, it may have. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really... I saw Dashboard were, with Snapcase. Right, yeah. Dashboard was on a, on a whole tour with Snapcase. Yeah. So there was definitely this feeling of, like, um, bands that were just kind of like holding on to each other in terms of like you come from where I come from, who cares that our bands don't sound alike? That's not what it's about. And so, so I do think that like the, the direction that I took with Antimatter was less musical um, because, you know, honestly, like I did feel like the thing that was holding everybody together wasn't music. It was, the ethics, the ideals, the, uh, the, the, the place, you know, the ways of being that, that we had. And uh, that's what we had in common. And so those were the things that I wanted to, to discuss and kind of talk about and explore in these interviews. Um, and I also wanted to basically just try to get, you know, deeper in the sense that, like, I was, you know, suffering from like crazy depression. I've, I've battled with depression most of my life. And, uh, and I think that that was another kind of harsh period for me. And so rather than me just kind of tell you about my life, there was something, uh, helpful to me about getting other people to just spill their guts. And, <laughs> and, and, and it made me feel, uh, less alone. That makes total and sense. It was valuable to me. So uh, the fact that I was able to kind of like put it out there for other people, I think, um, you know, not that I'm, I'm saying it was some sort of like altruistic project, but, you know, in the back of my head, I felt definitely like, you know, if I feel less alone, somebody else does too. And mm-hmm. that's, that's cool. I'm that's awesome. That. Well, there's such a connection to the, the the sort of your your talking of it wasn't about the music. It was that all these kind of bands were connected, and it was a, it was that scene. Um, and and people, you know, yeah, you, it's like, uh, you know, the Orange Nine guys are comfortable with these bands touring with them because they know that they came from a certain part or they were all sort of in it together. And that just seems to, I don't know, kind of uh, yeah. strengthen numbers. <laughs> it's it's it's. I mean, that's the thing when we talk about, like, you know, even the bands that came up around Texas that we were touring with or that we were playing with at the time, um, you know, I think that there's this, like, fantasy that, you know, we were all, like, emo 
Like, and I don't know really what that means in terms of like where we came from, but as far as we were concerned, I mean, like I remember being on tour with Promise Ring and like uh, we were like blasting like Start Today or something in, in the park in a parking lot or something, and like or uh, you know my, one of my favorite <laughs> kind of funny stories about Mineral was like meeting those guys in Texas and uh, and being like not sure like about them like I, I we were just kind of talking and I was like. Mm. Um, and like Carrie from Christie Front Drive had put out a seven inch of theirs and he gave it to me while, when we stayed at his house in Colorado. And so, um, and the only thing he said to me when he gave me the seven inch, actually, he said, you guys use volume pedals. You'll like this. <laughs> so I was like, okay. <laughs> so that's, I still think about that whenever I think of mineral. That's awesome. But, um, but I remember like hanging out with those guys and I was, you know, I wasn't sure like, are we warming up to each other? And then, uh, their drummer Gabe, like, lifted his shirt or something or his sleeve and showed me that he had a war zone tattoo. And I was like, Oh dude, what's up? (laughs) (laughs) And then all of a sudden it was like, those guys were like completely our boys. Like, like, you know, we're tight. And we realized that we had this, you know, you grow up with those records, you grow up with those bands, you grow up with these ideas and, and the scene. And there's something that's, you know, hard to describe that, you know, connects you and so as far as i was concerned what all of our bands were doing still kind of fell into this like you know if there was a label that i've you know i've always said this that if there was a label that i ever was like okay you can use that that's a good label was post-hardcore because i felt like it was factual it was just a factual label that's all yeah the uh the the site's kind of like a i call it post-hardcore emo because it's so many of those bands kind of went into that realm and it, and it fits both ways. I, I, yeah, I actually love that term more. Well, there's, there's something about that term to me that's not descriptive about the music, but descriptive about the band, if you know what I mean. Like you can't say that like every band that's called post hardcore sounds alike. To me, all it means is that you came from this place and then started playing music that maybe venture too far away from that place to call it hardcore but you still basically kept the same ethics the same ideas um the same aesthetics like you know all of our aesthetics were still coming from hardcore places we were you know we may have loved Britpop or like um whatever but like we were all just like completely obsessed with like discord records and like you know what i mean like touch and go and those were the those were the things that were really turning us on musically at that time were things that came from hardcore. Yeah. And it, it's so funny. You say the sort of the, the hardcore and, you know, you find a war zone, you know, you see the war zone tattoo and you're like, okay, great. I, it's happened. It still happens to this day for me though. A guy was fixing my computer at the Apple store. He saw my iTunes and he was like, Oh wait, you're into hardcore. Yeah. Hold on. Let me just get you a new phone. You know, like, <laughs> And I was like, yes. You okay. know? <laughs> I was like, no, absolutely, absolutely. It's still, it's it still happens. Thing. It's, it's, there's a little bit of a tribal thing about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's, it's the same reason why it's like, it's not bizarre. It was never bizarre for us to play at a hardcore show. Like we played tons of traditional hardcore shows. Um, and I would assume that the only people that were uncomfortable with that were people who didn't understand this this thing 
who weren't really part of the tribe. <laughs> yeah. What did you think about, I mean, so many tours now are packaged where it's the same kind of band, um, you know, five bands in a row, four bands in a row. And I still, I liked having the post-hardcore band or the band that was like an indie leaning or, and then the super, you know, um, you know, super, super just New York hardcore kind of band. It just, I, it was like what I was listening to anyway. And I feel like kids are kind of, and I'm saying kids, but you know, they're kind of siloed. They're like, all right, well, you like this. Well, go here. Um, and this is the tour. And I don't think a kid, I think a kid might like a top 40 band and might like thing. And, it's, it just seems like they're siloing them, and they're like, why aren't these tours doing well? And I'm like, well, because you have the same genre the whole night. Yeah, it's. I agree. I mean, you know, it's hard to say again because it's like I've kind of been out of the mix for a long time in, in, in that sense. Like, um, But, you know, I, I did feel the other night actually really positive. Like, I really enjoyed the fact that, um, you know, Underdog played right before us. And it's like, you know, I remember seeing underdog i'm pretty sure underdog played the last show at the ritz uh it was like underdog and murphy's law and somebody else i think this was in like 1989 or something but i i remember i remember very distinctly underdog shows that i went to as a fan you know and 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 so you know obviously if you're a fan of a band like whether or not underdog has directly influenced me as a musician i can't say but they're certainly in my musical psyche uh, there's certainly, they exist in my, in my consciousness, uh, when I think of, um, all the music that I've listened to over the years. And I like, I, I love Richie. I love, I like underdog. I think they're, you know, a great band. And I think it was an interesting, cool, uh, cool band to play with on that bill. I mean, it definitely diversified things a little bit, which, you know, for me is a positive development. Yeah, I want this. I want different people in the same room, you know. And it's just not the same, you know, tough guy, or it's you know all the wussies with the backpacks. You know, I, I want, I want. But everybody. it's also like you know, it's also kind of bucking on assumptions that you know, even hardcore kids, and even the hardest hardcore kids, only listen to hardest hardcore. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I just don't believe that. And I think that you know, I was talking to Jordan at Revelation the other night, and. uh you know, we were, you know, he was kind of like, we were, he was talking about the shows and he was saying how he just thinks it's really interesting how, how much like Texas is the reason is just kind of preserved in some way, like with, with a, with a certain group of people. And the only thing he could think of was just like, you know, I think that, you know, you were kind of like this pivot band for a lot of people who maybe were like, you know, super hardcore and then, you know, maybe got into your band and bands that were like you at around that time. And then, you know, you served as kind of like this catalyst for some sort of pivot in their life. And, uh, and so they're very, they, mem- they remember that and, and they're kind of like, um, they're loyal to that for some reason. Um, I don't know. That's his hypothesis, but you know, I do think that, that there's something to that as well. I do think like, I know that um, in that, what was that book that Andy Greenwald wrote? Uh, uh, nothing feels good. Nothing feels good. Uh, I think he called us like he called us like a gateway drug band or something. Like uh, basically, like saying like of all the kind of quote unquote emo bands from that time, like we were kind of he was arguing that we were like this real gateway drug for like hardcore kids 
to like move into a different music. I don't know. That's hard for me to say from my position. Well, from it's funny when Jordan's saying that and Andy kind of saying that's exactly what happened to me. Um, I actually remember getting your record, bringing it home. I was into hardcore. I, I grew up in Vermont, so I'd see New York and Boston hardcore. Didn't get to see a lot of like big bands, so those were kind of that was it. Sick of all, Sand Black Church, Tree, any of those right. hardcore bands. That's what. I, and I got the Texas record. I remember. Get coming home listening to it and kind of and I've never told anybody this literally I was like I don't know I was like <laughs> I was like they're in I think hard. a lot of people probably had that reaction <laughs> oh come on but no it was that thing where I was like I don't know I'm not but, even kidding I've heard that a lot actually really because I it was that thing I heard and I was like okay I like this it's heavy but I'm into hardcore still but it, I think it was like six months later I picked it up again I was like oh and it really was that sort of first time through. I was like, I don't get this. But I bought it because someone was like, you like hardcore, you're going to like this, blah, blah, blah. And then six months later, I was like, oh, I get it now. Um, and so for me, it definitely was that gateway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's weird. It's like I said, I mean, I'm just kind of, any, any, everything I'm saying right now is like pure conjecture or speculation because it's really difficult from my position and my perspective um, you know, I just was, you know, the dude playing guitar. Like I, this was my band. This is so I'm like looking at it from a different place. Um, and I'm, you know, I do know that like, um, you know, I think that there was a lot of conscious thought about, you know, what will the hardcore think, the hardcore scene think about this? Like on my end, I think I don't know that you know anybody else in the band, but. I, I do know that from my end, and I'm the type of person who thinks too much, admittedly. Um, <laughs> I was I was concerned, and um, and I was I was happy to be um, welcomed. Yeah, it's it's, def- <laughs> it's 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 definitely stuck around. Um, you know, I was going to say, like the what was your thoughts, sort of, from this you know, show versus the one in 2006. I mean, I, I actually, I left Thanksgiving dinner early, um, and my parents were mad, um, but I made it. Um, and you know, what was, is there any differences to it? Um, I mean, I loved that, you know, you announced one show in 2006 and then sells out and nothing. And then you have another one and, um, to have this again, um, six years later. Interestingly, I would say that there were very different experiences. Um, like 2006 was like, I mean, 2006 was definitely a, a really like a mind fucky experience. Yeah. <laughs> Is that articulate enough? <laughs> um, because that was really like, holy crap, I can't believe we're doing this. Um, and, and the shows themselves were just absolutely fantastic. The response was amazing. And, and just the fact that like, when they were over, I, you know, it was really like, that's when you expect the internet to just explode in negativity. Yeah. Um, they sucked. They weren't that good. <laughs> that never happened. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, people were really excited and, um, and if anything, disappointed that we weren't doing more. Um, but at the time it just, it, it wasn't feasible. Uh, we knew that that was all we could do. So we didn't want to even hint at um, any other thing because at that time that was just what it was. But this time it was different for a number of reasons. Like for one, 
it wasn't our idea. That's a, that was like that. That's really like a huge thing. <laughs> um, so the way it went down was that basically we were asked to do this. We were asked to do it sometime in the spring, actually, and we kind of were like, no, no, no. And then in July we were asked again, and this time I think uh, this was after the California shows happened. And Chris had gone out to the California shows to play in Super Touch. And so he came back and was like, man, it was an amazing time. It was just like the vibe was incredible, whatever. So we were, I, you know, and I'd watched the YouTube videos and it looked like a good time. And, and I was like, well, you know, okay, maybe I'm not opposed. And so, you know, we had this meeting. Uh, we went to an Indian restaurant on 6th Street and just hashed it out and talked it out. And, uh, and so this was, I don't remember exactly when in July, but it was close to my birthday. And so, uh, we decided that we would do it. And I remember, uh, Chris Daly, uh, texted Revelation from the table and said, wow. okay, we'll do it. We'll do it. And the next morning I woke up and it was like on the internet already. <laughs> And I was like, holy shit. I mean, it just got real, really fast. <laughs> You're like, oh shit, we agreed to it. We're in it. Yeah, like there was no backing out. It was done. Like, and it just, within 12 hours, it got real. And so that was, um, that was a really crazy, surreal kind of experience because last time we had enough time to kind of agree on it, kind of conceive it, sit on it for a little while, like before we made any announcements, you know, there was a real kind of like slow process so that we were ready when it happened. Um, and I was concerned also, you know, like it, six years is, is like practically another lifetime in music scenes, you know? Uh, and I was like, are we, you know, is anyone going to care this time? <laughs> and uh, so it was definitely... I think a process of trying to figure out like who, okay, so we're just, we're doing this thing now. Who are we in 2012? And that was always the thing for us is that, you know, when we come out to do this, this type of thing, it's not a, it's not an issue of like, you know, trying to relive 1996. I think we're better now. <laughs> um, and we have more access to the things that we wanted to do in 1996, but maybe didn't have access to back then in terms of like really trying to create a cool experience for people who are coming to see the band. Um, and so, uh, you know, it was a matter of just kind of rediscovering ourselves as a, as a band in 2012. Um, and what does Texas in 2012 look like? And, <laughs> and I mean, luckily, you know, I was told at the Revelation Fest that apparently many people were, uh, were saying that I look like I've been cryogenically frozen. How the fuck does he look that young? <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so that's an awesome thing to hear as opposed to, man, he really let himself go. Whoa, like, busted. You know. <laughs> Norman, jeepers. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like everybody in the band, we still look like a band. We still yes. look like... You know, nobody is really, nobody looks like your dad yet. Yes. And, uh, and so I think that helps with, with being able to like do these shows and still, you know, we look like a band, we sound like a band. Oh man, we're a band. So the key so, is we need to make sure you guys still look young so you'll keep playing shows. <laughs> 
no, no, yeah. You just have to you just have to catch us at particular points in our lives where this is possible. But but well, okay, so I should so I should kind of backtrack though. So one of the things that immediately we we were talking about um you know, when we decided that we would do this again was that this was another opportunity to kind of finish something. Um I mean, obviously everybody knows we broke up kind of like at a, I mean, what, what could be, at least in, in we, were, we were definitely on the incline, um, let's just say that. I, you know, we don't know what our peak would have been, but we, we were definitely on the incline. You mentioned that that last show that you had played before you broke up in Europe, you felt like, wow, this is crazy, everyone's singing our song, and we're done. Right. Well, that was, that was the thing where it was just an issue of, like, whatever our last show is, it's got to be amazing. And so we... Uh, we were playing in Wiesbaden and uh, that was the last show of the tour and it was the best show of the tour. It was amazing. And when it was over, it was pretty much like, we could break up right now. (laughs) 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 So, and we did. (laughs) Um, But, so yeah, so I mean, I think that there was, there's always been this sense of unfinishedness with this band. Um, Obviously, I think, you know, the big question mark for us had always been like this record that we started working on that we never finished. And, uh, and so that was always a huge question mark. I mean, who knows? Like it could have completely isolated everybody in 1997 or 1998. If that came out, we have no idea, but I do know this, the songs that we wrote back then, uh, still don't really sound like anything that people are writing today and to me that's a great source of like pride and achievement like that whatever direction we were trying to go in we were definitely going in a direction that was ours and 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 i still feel that way about a lot of our songs you know like there are definitely influences in a lot of our songs and i can definitely point them all out but um but we were always striving you know to to get to this place where like our like where our sound was as distinct as possible, you know, that the, the influences were still there, but that it was very clear who was channeling this. But people, when and, they, what they would say, they would say it sounds like Texas is the reason. Um, to, when the, people would reference, it's like one of those bands that it's the first five bands you mention um, when people are talking about a scene or this that that time frame. It's like you're mentioned because it's so different from promise ring or mineral it's like it got it got it was it, it was mentioned like that and i think that's well, I mean, really you know the thing too is that when we were a band i mean we we broke up right when promise ring kind of started really taking off so uh so if anything i mean it's funny that promise ring to this day and us we're just we're so like inextricable in, in some ways like it seems like every time you hear one man's name you hear the other man's name not too far behind and uh, and I think that's amazing, considering that we sound nothing alike <laughs> <laughs> at all. <laughs> um, but that's kind of what I'm again what I was talking about before. It was like I met Jason from Promise Ring in 1993 when I was on tour with Shelter, and his band None Less Standing opened for us in Madison. Wow! And and that was the first time we met and became friends. And when I got their demo in the mail. Uh, for antimatter, 
Um, I didn't even know that Jason was in the band. I just loved the demo. And so when we went on our first tour with Shift, um, I called someone in, I believe that we played with them in Madison. It could have been Milwaukee, but um, no, it was Madison. I called uh, this guy, Joe, who ran a record label in Madison to, to book a show there. And I said, can you put the promise ring on the show? I really love the demo. And that was the first time we met those guys. So that was our first tour. And then, you know, we did our last tour together. And I just think it, it is really great that, you know, our connection again is really like, you know, it was hardcore. It wasn't anything else. That's what it was. But we sounded nothing alike. Yeah. <laughs> but it is. You, I mean, you, you said it better than I did. It was like you mentioned Promise Ring. Two bands later, they mentioned you. Um, that's, yeah. a, that's, that's pretty amazing to have. It's yeah, not... <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I mean, we love those guys still. So it's really, and it's amazing that they're playing in 2012 as well. So, and um, uh, they were a lot. Their last, I saw, I flew to Chicago to see them, um, and it was an excuse to see a bunch of people and the New York shows, and just to see the happiness from them. Um, yeah. was something that I almost enjoyed more than the show. Like just. Look how much fun they're having. Like, fuck yeah. It's 2012, yeah. and these kids and people, like even young kids who never got to see them back then is, are now able to, and they're freaking out, and it just seemed like they enjoyed it. And that's what I love about these reunions. You're enjoying it. That's, it's Which not... is good, because the last time I saw the promotion when they were a band, it was messy. <laughs> that last I one... mean, I, it may have been the last show... I don't even know, but it was, I was living in San Francisco and, uh, so this would have been in 2000 maybe or somewhere in there. Um, in the first couple of years of that decade anyway, but they were playing a show and I remember Jason destroying his guitar at the end of the set. And Whoa. I was just like, what is going on? <laughs> like, when did they become kiss? Like, this is crazy. But um, he was just really upset. I don't know what was going on. <laughs> I was like, all right, I'm just going to leave. I'll see you guys later. <laughs> um, it was, yeah, it was really messy. So it was definitely amazing and fun to kind of just see that original kind of like happiness. It's all the rage spark. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. I mean, I'm sure that last tour wasn't too fun with Bad Religion and people not stoked and oh right yeah well that was um i actually was living with jason in chicago when they did that tour oh and so I, there was I remember... another one what's that so there was another tour after that oh i must have forgot i forgot about that one yeah there definitely was there definitely was the bad religion thing uh happened towards the beginning of woodwater and i think uh that i saw them again at the end oh, okay but it was definitely um that was a weird tour for them to be on and they knew it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you need an exciting new record to look forward to, Iodine Recordings, the Boston-based record label, is releasing the 30th anniversary edition of Quicksand's classic debut, Slip, on vinyl. This is the album's first time on vinyl in over a decade with completely remastered sound. This deluxe gatefold edition with Slipcase comes with a poster, a deluxe LP, and a 64-page hardcover book. The book chronicles the album's history and has commentary from Anthrax, Hole, Rise Against, Youth of Today, Papa Roach, and more. Experience this iconic post-hardcore record in a brand new way with the 30th 
anniversary edition of Quicksand Slip. Available for pre-order now and in stores on March 31st, 2023. And since they returned in 2021, Iodine Recordings has released almost 20 albums to date from bands like Stretch Armstrong, The Darling Fire, One Line Drawing, Jerome's Dream, Sorker Fire, and more. Head on over to iodinerecordings.com for more and follow them on Instagram at Iodine Recordings. That's cool. I mean, the I was going to mention some of the um, – I'd like to go back to Texas, but now that you mentioned you know, Chicago and San Francisco, um, there was that point where you were doing a bunch of DJing and you know, got into techno music. And um, I, I got exposed to, to this um, a long time ago from some mutual friends and, and sort of uh, – it was interesting, the explosion now of what it is and how it's on pop – radio and how it's like everyone needs to be connected to it um it just seems like it kind of bore from so many different people and genres when you and obviously you need you needed vinyl back then and it was harder um so it kind of took a little more effort what were your kind of thoughts back then and just kind of seeing it now where literally i could be remixing a song right now while i'm talking to you well I mean, in terms of, like, the, the mass kind of cultural acceptance of electronic music, like, I definitely saw that coming, like, in the sense that in, so in 2000, well, in 1998 and to 2000, I was working at a record store in Chicago called Gramophone, which is, like, the, like, number one house music record store in the country. It's legendary. Um, and I was very very psyched. And actually what's funny about that is that the reason I got a job at Gramophone was from hardcore. See? Because uh, <laughs> I I walked in one day in 1998 after I'd moved to Chicago uh, and I went record shopping. And so in order to um, use one of the turntables to listen to records and decide whether or not you want to buy them, you have to give one of the employees your ID and they hold on to your ID and they give you a stylus and you put the stylus in and you listen to the records. So I, I see this guy, he's playing some records up in the booth, and I give him my ID, he gives me a stylus, and then he looks at the ID, and he looks at me, and he's like, anti-matter? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. <laughs> and we became friends and uh, immediately, and he was like, oh, do you need a job? Let's, you know, here, you know. And so I started working That's there. Awesome. Um, because of an ex-hardcore kid that became gotten to house music but um <laughs> but so yeah so uh i was working there so I, I was kind of like in the industry so to speak and then when i moved to san francisco i pretty much immediately got a job uh with primal records uh in berkeley and so uh at primal i did two things um one was that i established their uh website and this was their first kind of uh venture into online sales. Um, so I helped them kind of establish the store and I basically managed the site and managed the store and, and whatnot. And then uh, I also used my own money to start the record label. And so I started putting out records, um, this house and tech house records that I was really into. So uh, from that perspective, like selling the records um, gave me a completely different idea of like house music as a business. Um, but I was also, I remember having this conversation with, with everybody at Primal and just saying, you know, especially when we started to see sales were starting to decline, things were starting to get a little weird in terms of like, you know, 
the MP3 or not even just MP3. At that time, it was controversial that DJs were using CDs. Like that was like, ooh, oh, that's tacky, you know. <laughs> um, so CDs were kind of like threatening vinyl because now it was like all of a sudden, you know, obviously if you're traveling with a book of CDs, that's much easier than a crate of albums. So, um, so you know, people were kind of getting down, and I remember having this conversation and saying, like, look, here's the thing. I think that if we stick this out, <laughs> I can see this kind of being uh, bigger than it is. Only because the sounds that are in house music, the sounds that are in techno music, I hear these sounds on the radio. They're just not. They're in different forms. Hip-hop is using it. R&B is using it. You know, some pop is even using it. Um, and what happens is I think that once, like, culture, once, like, the mass culture gets accustomed to a sound, it's able to then hear that sound in different places a different way. And, um, I mean, I definitely think, like, at that time, hip-hop was, was, was kind of really, like, taking the charge, whether it be, you know, like, Neptune stuff uh, or, like, Timbaland stuff or, like, um, you know, there were a lot of records that I was hearing. And even, like, you know... What's that Missy Elliott song that sampled Cybertron? Um, I mean, they were just straight-up samples of techno records, where it was just like... And that was going back to the origins of hip-hop and, you know, Africa Bambata sampling Kraftwerk. So we saw this happen before, and I definitely saw this as a window of opportunity in terms of, like, people's tastes shifting towards electronic music. Unfortunately... In the back of my head, I also kind of saw that as a shift towards the more commercial electronic music, which was always, which has always existed. And, uh, you know, that's not really what I've ever been into. Like, I don't want people to get the impression that, like, the music that I was playing sounded anything like Dead Mouse or something. like Or um, David Guetta or something. Yeah, no. I mean, that music always kind of existed, but that was definitely, even in the underground, people would be like, well, yeah, okay, that's for a certain type of club that I probably didn't go to. <laughs> like, I've often been asked by people, you know, how does somebody who's into punk kind of get into, like, house? And for me, my answer was always pretty straightforward. I actually think that they are very similar in a lot of ways um, in the sense that, um, you know, house music basically started... Uh, by a bunch of poor people who couldn't afford real instruments and basically went to pawn shops and just bought whatever um, rich people threw away, which in this case were drum machines and bass, analog bass machines and just things that um, didn't seem useful to the rock guitar god who bought them and he could jam out in his room. Uh, and then they invented this entirely new style of music using these discarded machines. I thought that was amazing. And it's very much like, you know, how my perception of the street kids in New York, even who were just playing like pawn shop instruments and, you know, just banging away at it. Um, <clears throat> also though, I will say that my experience in house music was really formative uh, and eye opening in the sense that, you know, hardcore, especially in the 80s for me, was a very idealistic experience. I had, um, you know, very clear ideas of how I thought the world should be, you know. And um, 
but when you went to a hardcore show, it didn't necessarily feel like a microcosm of that imaginary ideal world that we sang about and screamed along with all the time. But house music was interesting to me, especially in Chicago, was that, you know, you listen to these house tracks and, you know, there are a lot of like corny vocals like that are like, oh, you know, uh, people got to stick together, like whatever, you know, <laughs> these kinds of like, you know, unity and like diversity and like all these types of things. But I remember uh, working at Gramophone and, and kind of looking around once and just being like, just, just among my coworkers thinking like, okay, just in my coworkers, we're talking about a group of people that are of every race, immigrants, men, women, gay, straight, older, younger, like every possibility that you could, you could come up with uh, existed in this scene, trans, like everything. <laughs> and, I, and I remember just feeling like how harmonious it was and, and how there was, there was no real even self-consciousness about that. And, uh, and that was really inspiring to me because I felt like, you know, say what you will about house music. And I think that probably a lot of punk kids have a lot of negative things to say about house music, but, you know, looking around the store that day and thinking about that scene, I really was like, these guys are talking the talk. Yeah. No, you're totally <laughs> right. The walk. I mean, it was really like, this is what everybody is singing about, like right here, right now. And, uh, and that was, you know, that also, I think, inspired me in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and you, in, in, in San Francisco, you also uh, rocked it with New Under Original, right? I did. Um, and that little super group with Chamberlain um, and uh, Mr. Jonah from FAR. And uh, was it a big move for you to do SF? Um, you know, coming, being in the East Coast and then kind of going a little bit farther in Chicago and then... Um, going to SF? I mean, was it a big move? Yeah. Was it kind of a, was it like, this is my next, you know, thing to break or did it just kind of happen? Um, Honestly, I think that the problem for me in Chicago was that it was too easy to live there. There was no struggle. <laughs> the, yeah, the rent was really cheap. People are nice. Uh, people are nice. I had more money than I knew what to do with. <laughs> I mean, I, literally, like, it was just like, I used to, there was a point that one year in Chicago where, like, just in vinyl, I think, I spent something like $12,000 one year. <laughs> and I was just like, I, you know what, that's too easy. That's like, that's crazy. Easy. So I uh, I remember um, Far had, had come and played Metro, and Jonah had kind of um, hinted that it was probably going to be over for them. And... So that that was kind of planted in my head. And then maybe a couple months later, Deftones came through with uh, Quicksand and Snapcase. And I was hanging out with Chino backstage, and he he mentioned something to me. Oh, I remember. He had some – he's like, oh, I, I got off the phone with Jonah last night. I talked to Jonah. Did you talk to him? And I was like, no. And he's like, far's done. He's done. Definitely <laughs> broken up. I was like, Really? He's like, he, he said, is he going to do something else? He's like, you should call him, man. You should call him. And I, <laughs> and I remember, like, I left that show, and I called Jonah that night. And was just like, so what's up? Uh, and, you know, he told me the whole thing. And, you know, we, I think I always looked at Jonah 
as a very versatile vocalist. And so that was something that I was, I was interested in, in playing with, um, in kind of being able to work with this person who kind of like, you know, he's a little bit of a shapeshifter, I think. And, uh, and that seemed like an interesting creative challenge of some sort. Um, so pretty much I, I, I knew that I was going to leave Chicago. It was just a matter of how, and that became the how. So, um, I moved to Oakland, um, and then started this band. Uh, but I think, you know, New End was like another band that was really like, you know, I think we had a clear idea of what it was going to be and it wasn't that, and we didn't last long enough to make it what it was or what it was supposed to be. I, I, I mean, I love the EP. I think there's some great stuff on the full length. I just think there was like a, I almost, I always wonder, like, what's the, what would have been if it was two records down line? What would have sounded like or what would it have Well, the kind problem of is the into? economics of it. You know, like, yeah. that was that was a clear situation where, where economics got into the way. Like, I moved to San Francisco and we just wanted to get going. So it was really a thing of like, okay, well, here's this collection of songs. Let me see what I can do with them. Kind of switch it up. We'll use this to kind of like get started. Mm -hmm. And then we'll do that record we've been talking about. Got it. Um, But it was just like in the course of supporting the record, I think a lot, there were a lot of things that were, that were kind of wrong, but in the course of supporting the record for me, I definitely realized one that even in the like, what was it like three to four years that I kind of been off the grid, um, things had really changed in a way that was making me very uncomfortable. Um, I, there was a sense of commercialism that had just kind of run rampant and unchecked. And, you know, I'm not, again, like, I'm not like this guy who's going to sit here and like, you know, be Mr. Indie or whatever. But at the same time, I'm not the guy who's going to take a uh, sponsorship from a energy drink, uh, you know, and take money from them to go on tour and put their banner behind us while yes. we play. Like, and people <laughs> were doing that. And it was absolutely just insane to me. Like I could not believe that not only were people doing that, but that kids weren't calling bullshit on it. And, uh, and so that really put me in a bad place. I, I felt like I was depressed. I didn't know who our peers were. Um, touring wasn't really fun. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, we did a tour with Hey Mercedes. That was fun. Cause you know, you know Brave dudes, yeah. Yeah. But like, other than that, I mean, it was really hard to find my place in this scene at that point. It just seemed like that time was, there was so much change and hardcore was kind of a little commercialized. Um, and I felt well, at like, at that point, see, this is the difference. This is the difference. I feel like that's when, you know, when I walked in, that was when it kind of lost all connection to hardcore. The bands that were playing didn't know the lyrics to break down the walls. <laughs> you know, like, even subconsciously or like, you know, yeah. somewhere in the back of their memory. It just wasn't in their memory. You know, uh, I mean, there were there were still some bands at that time who were, who were definitely um, from the scene. I mean, when I met, like, Chris Caraba, uh, you know, he saw Texas as a reason in Miami. Like he's an old hardcore kid. Save the day. We're old hardcore kids. Um, so there were still bands that were like, you know, that I could reasonably say they're quote post hardcore, but 
Um, but there were a lot of other bands. Like I remember playing, we played with something corporate and there was like a, there was some sort of weird thing that happened at that show too, where it was just something corporate happened at that show. And, <laughs> and I remember just feeling completely disgusted and just being like, I, I need to, you know, I don't know. I don't know who I am in this, in this world right now. <laughs> well, it was like, it was almost like the, the, I felt that the certain shows, like these kids would show up and they had like crazy racks, you know, of like, you know, a tuner and they had all their equipment super new. And I'm not saying that, you know, that doesn't have to happen, but it just seemed like they had all their moves down already. And it was like, well, you know what it was though? It wasn't, it wasn't so much that as much as it was, there was a sense of kind of keeping up with the Joneses. I think everybody really was like, um, almost in this weird competition to, to, to be like, who's the most pro yeah. Who, you know, are you on a bus? Are you, you know, do you have, uh, <laughs> do you have five techs with you? Like, um, and honestly, I mean, I think like probably if you talk to a lot of those bands now, they would probably see those days as like the days when we pissed our money away. Um, but you know, at the time that wasn't a game that I was really interested in playing. Um, and I didn't really have those same kinds of aspirations. Like, I definitely felt like moving to San Francisco for me, the aspiration was purely creative. I had a creative aspiration to make a record with Jonah, but we didn't get there, I think, for a lot of reasons. Um, that wasn't completely all the reason, but it definitely was putting me in a place where I didn't know that I wanted to be in a rock band. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about Texas and then also kind of the future for you because I think a lot of fans listening to these love to hear kind of what's next but for I wanted to kind of chat about um, some of the songs about Texas and um, what I kind of call the money note um, okay what's that so the money note is when you're sort of so stoked on a song that it like hits you either in the heart or it makes you throw the finger in the air which I think is the ultimate compliment for this genre. So okay. an example is Nickel Wound with the song, Is There Anything Left For Me? That's when the fingers go up. Um, it's, it's technically Nickel Wound. Nickel Wound, sorry. I, oh, I, I wrote it wrong. <laughs> I wrote it wrong. See, this is like this is like a I'm a TV reporter. I shouldn't read. I should just think. Um, so, uh, so that point of is there anything left for me? And people finger point during that. Um, okay. Uh, if you think I'm crazy, that's fine. This is what this site's all about. Well, like I, like I said, I have no perspective about this. So you're you're totally yeah. You know, you're as crazy as anyone else. Perfect. Um, and then I think another point is if it's here when we get back, it's ours. That song, the drum roll right before the chorus, about a minute 30 right. in, the point where everything wants to stage dive. Um, right. <laughs> that's, which is, again, a fantastic breakdown, by the way. Um, uh, and then I think the other one is a, a Jack with One Eye. I think that opening riff, um, if I had thought that up, I would have probably played it for hours and not let anyone else play anything else. Um, I would love to kind of hear about how that song came about. Jack with One Eye? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, Jack and I, I remember very specifically, like started in my bedroom in the Equal Vision loft, like on an acoustic guitar. And it just was that riff. Um, but you know, Texas had this kind of interesting thing about it, like where when we were really like 
together and, and on, um, you know, it was, it was pure. Like when I think about like the songs actually being formulated into like the songs that you hear on the record, um, that moment feels just felt just very intuitive always. And I remember like Jack with one eye specifically, I used to do this weird thing, um, when I wrote music and I guess I still do, but now I don't, since I'm not writing music for anybody in particular, like, and I'm singing it easily, like, I don't have to do this anymore. But when I was just writing music or riffs or things, um, <clears throat> a lot of times I would, I would kind of like pair it with this kind of like thought in my head. And <laughs> this sounds stupid, but I remember Jack with one eye, the thought in my head when that riff first kind of came out was, um, this may mean nothing to people who don't live in New York City, but if you've ever like stood on the corner um, waiting to cross the street, and like um, like one of the New York City buses go flying past you really close to the yes. sidewalk on purpose, <laughs> yeah, like, and you're just like, holy shit, like that is so close to me. And it's just, like, so big, and if I moved, like, two inches forward, I would just get completely taken out. And, and, and again, this might be me sounding crazy, but um, I feel like, I don't know, this has happened to me, but I, I'm definitely the person who's, like, thinking, what if I just step forward? <laughs> you know, or, like, you know, when you're standing on the, the, uh, the, the subway platform. What if I just step forward? Yeah. <laughs> and you never do. Never do. But you always have these, like, you know, black ideas, these dark thoughts, you mm -hmm. know, these kind of, like, um, I don't know. Maybe I'm too depressed and that's where my brain goes. But, like, <laughs> <laughs> obviously, it's nothing I would ever do. But that thought, for some reason, was the thought that, that I always associated with that risk. And, uh... <laughs> And so that kind of, that thought was kind of like the thought that like really kind of like propelled the music for that song for me. Um, I don't know why. I love that. So, uh, and I do that, but I, I've done that a lot with a lot of songs, but for some reason that thought is, is, is very vivid and that connection is very vivid to me still for some reason. Um, but yeah, so I remember bringing Jack with when I then like what I had so far to the rest of the band and it was just, that was one of those practices that I always, you know, there were two practices of all the practices we had that I remember the most. And it was the Jack with one eye practice and the first practice and the Jack with one eye practice. Um, I remember because that song literally just happened and it, you know, like whatever I brought in, it was like, we were all just completely intuitively doing everything together. Um, it felt like we barely worked on it and it just was like, and, and I remember just hearing it back and being like, I fucking love this song so much. And I feel like it's still my favorite song. Like that's the song that when I listen to, when I listen to that song, I can actually kind of step outside of it as if I didn't even play it and just really like appreciate it. And that's awesome. Well, it's funny. It. The other thing I wrote, and I didn't read this because I got nervous when I fucked up the song, and or fucked up the name of the song because I felt like Ron Burgundy. Um, uh, it's I wrote that song seems so simple, you know, um, and has such a great crescendo to it. So it seems like it got to such a great place as a band putting it together, but it came from such a simple place. 
Um, I, that, yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I also think that what I think, one thing about Texas the Reason songs in general is that um, they're not, they, they kind of always feel like songs in the sense that, you know, we think of songs. <laughs> but when we think of most songs, you can usually tear it apart into verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. And like, when you think of Jack with One Eye, it's not really like that. Yeah. Like, what, what's the chorus to a Jack with One Eye? There but, isn't. It right? Just, there isn't it, really a chorus. <laughs> no. And, and, and I think that that, but at the same time, you know, it's a very satisfying, complete song, and it's a memorable one. And, you know, that's, I'm, that totally sounds terrible, like tooting my own horn or something. But, like, um, but I do think that that's one of the things about this band that I think is special still when I, you know, when I'm trying to figure out why people still care. I do think that it has something to do with the fact that, you know, whether it was accident or on purpose, you know, we were definitely trying to put together music that wasn't necessarily uh, recursive or formulaic, um, but just kind of like we just went with it and, and, and kind of wherever it took us, that's where it was. And that, that's a perfect song for that. Yeah, and I think that the song, and I mentioned, you know, the the money note again. I mean, it's that point where you listen to that song and you're like, fuck yes. And I think you guys had so many of those songs that if it was antique or if it's here when we get back, it's ours. And just it, you had these moments in those songs and there was, it. I felt there was some hardcore in it too because there'd be like a little bit of a breakdown, but it wouldn't be, you know, like a breakdown, but you could tell that that's where it came from. Um, or if it was, you know, a chorus. Well, maybe in the, in the earlier stuff, but I yeah. definitely think like the, the influence that we, one thing that happened, I think at some point in the Texas is the reason trajectory that really changed everything was, uh, this kind of realization of how much everyone really loved the Beatles. <laughs> and like that sounds crazy or dumb or whatever of course everybody loves the Beatles but you know there was something about the Beatles to me that was like and, and to everybody I think everybody maybe had a different thing that they loved about it uh, or loved about them the most but to me uh, the thing that I really loved about them was that when they wanted to do this kind of like anthemic thing they were fucking just un you know like they I felt like they originated that kind of uh, there's, there's something okay but when I think yeah I mean he, he, that word is so hackneyed now it but, is but I, I feel like it's like you know I feel like Coldplay sold their soul to like write some of those songs like because of it's just that so epic and they're kind of like you two sort of that well, I'll tell you I'll defend Coldplay before I even defend you two like I actually think Coldplay writes some pretty amazing songs. No, I like, agree. I, I just I always joke that really... they sold their soul for that. Like I was like, how do you keep writing these fucking hooks? <laughs> <laughs> well, there, yeah, there is this, this there is this kind of thing about them where you're just like, God damn it, you fucking did it again. <laughs> and it's and it's four notes, you fucker, and it's in pentatonic. How did you do yeah. that? Well, you know, <laughs> I remember I uh, they did this show during the Viva La Vida. Uh, release like when that came out they played Madison Square Garden for free and it was like just send us your email address and we'll send you two tickets so I was just like okay why not so I sent them an email address and uh 
I got two tickets. I was like, wow, awesome. <laughs> Someone that was so, into hardcore uh, must have picked him. What's that? Someone that was into hardcore must have picked him. I'm yeah. Just <laughs> <laughs> well, so, well, this is this is what I find interesting. So my boyfriend, who is uh, he's also a musician. He used to play in a band called Spent, who were on Merge in the '90s. Um, so he, you know, we kind of come from similar places. We knew who we were. We've been together for like seven years now. Um, but so he went with me, and he's not a Coldplay fan, right? Like he, if anything, he kind of went almost begrudgingly. Um, <laughs> but I was like, you know, I really think that, you know, I, and I don't know, maybe I'm dumb, but I really think that you're going to get something out of this, whatever this is. I just feel like whatever this band is doing, um, I just can't not like it. I don't know what it is. <laughs> so we went to the show and, um, and sure enough, like at the end of the show, he was like, I get it. Like, I can't not like that. That wasn't, there was nothing not to like, <laughs> you know, he's like, whether you think it's, it's put on or whatever, they just do it really well. And they know, I think the thing that really impressed him was like, you know, playing Madison Square Garden and knowing how to work a room of that size, like to where like, you know, we weren't particularly close to the stage, but they somehow made us feel like a part of the show. And I really, you know, I took something, I take, I take something from it, uh, experiences like that because, you know, even on this scale that we're at, you know, uh, playing these shows in New York, for example, you know, we still kind of went all out. Like, you know, if you went to the rest of the Revelation Fest, you probably noticed that no one else had the light show that we had. Yep. That's because we had our own designer. <laughs> 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 because we're like, you know what? Lights matter. <laughs> you know, we had our own projection guy. He brought in his own equipment. He did everything himself. It was all like, you know, we had our, we were like, you know what? If we're going to do this, let's do it. Let's make it a thing. Like, let's not just show up and play the songs. And, and, and I'm sure that that would be fine too. But like, there's this element for us where we just really want to make it a special evening uh, for people. That's always been, you know, in 2006, that was what we wanted to do. And, and in 2012, we just kind of like kept upping the game and we're just like, let's just do it. Like we're in a position where we can actually, you know, we don't need uh, a ton of money. You know, let's, let's put the money back into the production and, and make like a memorable experience. That's awesome. Yeah. I got to work with Coldplay at another job and just to see, you know, the work ethic and sort of, it wasn't, it came from the right place, um, from the limited re, uh, interaction that I had, um, and to see it performed live and, and the sounds and what they were doing. It was, I, I that's interesting that you took that away of being like, you were whatever up in the rafters in section 400, but you still felt, and that's probably, that's a gift. Um, I yeah. think <laughs> for someone to be, yeah, able to no, do that. I mean, our, uh, our old, we've been friends with this guy, Philip. He's our, uh, he was our booking agent back in the day in, uh, you know, in the nineties. And since then he's become this like mega booking agent in Europe. Like he books Kylie Minogue and wow. like, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> so he's like, he's like for real, he books news and he books, you know, whatever. But, um, he went to this Coldplay show before he came to New York for our shows. And, uh, and he was like, have you seen the new, the new, uh, Coldplay like production or whatever? And I was like, no. And he's just like, I mean, he's like, it's insane. He's like, 
I get it. It's sort of cheap. You know, everybody got this thing that's kind of like, I don't know if it was a glow in the dark thing or something that you put around your wrist. Yep. But apparently at some point in the show, it just, everything lights up and all of a sudden you're, you're part of the light show. And I was like, you know, he was like, that's just so simple, but it so works. When that happened, you felt like euphoric. (laughs) And I was just like, yeah, yeah. I mean, you gotta get it, gotta get it to him. Like, they're definitely like thinking about this shit. And, you know, I appreciate that. Like, I don't always, I didn't, I, even when I was uh, a kid and it was the 1980s and I remember like the thrash bands used to be so adamant, uh, you know, reactionary against the glam bands, you know, like we don't need to get dressed up. We just wear our t-shirts and jeans and go out there and rock, you know, and they would be so like, proud of that but you know even as a kid i was like look i may like your music better but you know let's just let's just be serious i mean you also go to a concert to have a fucking good time yeah (laughs) you know it's not just like if i just want to listen to the music i could go there are ways to do that (laughs) so it's 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 kind of about like you know trying to to do something a little extra, you know, for, for whatever you can afford to do, why not? I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I think that also these songs that we played, um, the songs that would have been on the second record. So, okay, I should say something about this second record. That yeah, because we you need to, people are asking me about it. People are asking well, me about that record. <laughs> okay, so basically, like, conceptually, this record was really starting to form up. And so you've heard us use this term, it is happening again, a lot. And uh, that was what the second record was going to be called. Um, we had decided straight up in 1997, the second album was called, It Is Happening Again. So that was kind of how we worked like we would write song titles before the songs existed and then just be like, that sounds like a nickel lounge. So, you know, <laughs> and that was kind of what we did. We did things in advance. Um, but the, the first, so the first song that we knew would be on the record was definitely going to be blue boy. And our, our intention was always that blue boy was going to be re-recorded for the album and that it was going to get like, you know, this big production that, that it deserved. And it never did, unfortunately. Um, the second song that we wrote was Every Little Girl's Dream, which is the more epic of the two, uh, of the other uh, two songs. It was, that's a song that I will say like straight up 100%. Like, I mean, to me, there's a real kind of like Beatles subconscious going on in that song. Um, there's just something about it. And, you know, I don't want to say too much about that, but I think that, um, I wasn't, it wasn't even just like, it was something that other people noticed at the time. I remember somebody saying it to me and, and, and me being like, um, but that song, even lyrically, it's almost like a mini narrative. It's very cinematic. There's a lot of lyrically it's different than every other Texas song that was ever written. I think it's, just completely on it on a on a different in a different place and i think that song was the one that was like for us like that was really like the beginning of the album we were just like wow this this is it this is the direction 
and and when rock and roll was just a baby that song was kind of an interesting weird experiment in terms of like it still had that kind of i guess i put it in the family of like the groove songs that that we have like what you know like a magic bullet or dressing cold or something like that um but it was another song where it was like uh so, um stylistically it felt to me like a pop song but structurally there's no chorus so <laughs> uh, so th- we seem to do that quite a bit um and it was always kind of a thing that i actually used to say when major labels were trying to sign us and all that stuff you know i would always be like look i get that you like the band that's cool but i just want you guys to know that like if you want to get on the radio, you kind of need a chorus and we don't really do that. (laughs) (laughs) At least not like on purpose. So if you're going to ask us to do it on purpose, it's probably not going to happen. (laughs) Um, And you know, and every major label would be like, no, no, we don't want you to just stay the way you are. Just, you know, we don't want you to change at all. And I'd be like, okay. You know, so, um, but so that was the direction that it was going in. And I felt like those three songs were really kind of like a capsule of what, Texas is the reason would have been. And, uh, and and I think that the reason why we brought those songs out to play again in 2012 um, was because we wanted that, we want there to be some sort of record of these songs because we still adore them, love them, um, and believe that they're probably among the best of what we did. You know, I think it's funny also that we're still calling them new songs. I mean, it's hilarious, <laughs> really. I mean, <laughs> these songs are older than some of the kids who are listening to them. <laughs> um, but that said, again, like I said before, I really feel like for these songs, I, I mean, for us, they really stood the test of time, but also that sense of, like, listening to them again and saying, like, you know, this doesn't really sound like anything that anyone's doing right now. And feeling like that's, awesome <laughs> you know yeah I, I i think that that's um that's something to be proud of i so. agree and then i would love to hear um someone asked on twitter we had a someone asked on twitter about um your your solo material and uh yeah. if there's any if there's any plan for it and uh, anything for that well you know over the years i've kind of put little things out on the internet um just random songs here and there. Uh, but I guess, you know, it's hard. When I think of, unfortunately, when I think of putting out music, I'm still kind of in that old old school mindset of like, if I put something out, people are going to expect me to play, tour, <laughs> and, and do stuff, and, and I don't want to do that. So I just wind up not putting it out. I had this insane, like, period of creativity uh, the year I met John, my partner. And um, it was an insane year where, like, I couldn't stop writing songs. And I probably demoed 25, 30, some, like, 30 real, like, songs that I was really like, holy crap, they're all really good. <laughs> and I was, I was just going crazy. And, you know, they were, like, these complete songs, too, which was also driving me because you know, for so long, um, I was the guitar player. Um, so I wrote music, but I never wrote lyrics. I never wrote melodies, you know, like that was always Garrett or Jonah or whoever. And, um, 
And so this was the first time where I was actually learning how to sing, learning how to write music from my voice. Um, and I think that that was something that I probably a lot of guitar players can relate to in, uh, when they try to start singing their own songs, which is that a lot of times you don't realize that when you write music before, you're writing music for other people's voices, not yours. And, um, and then so what happens is when you try to sing to these songs or this style of song, like if I tried to sing to a song that maybe I had originally envisioned Garrett singing, my reaction would probably be like, oh, fuck, I can't sing, you know, like, because it wasn't really made for my voice. But so I, it was about learning what my voice was, what it could do, and then learning how to write for that. And once I figured it out, it was like all of a sudden I could record four-part harmonies that sounded good. And I was like, wow, like, I think I can sing. So it was, <laughs> so it was yeah, it was really, it was really great. And, I, and some of those songs I just feel like I'm still like, super in love with. And so over the years, I've written more and more and more. Um, but again, it's just this weird thing where um, I have this like mental block about it where, uh, you know, maybe someday I, I will kind of put it on Bandcamp and say, have at it, mm-hmm. it's free, you know, like, I don't know. Um, I could very well wind up doing that. Um, but I definitely couldn't proceed doing it in any sort of like traditional, like record company kind of way. And, and as far as like performing any of it, that's, that's like some Star Trek shit. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like the idea of getting up and playing something by myself would be like such a new, a new thing that I don't, you know, it, I'd have to really like gear up. I would love to kind of find out, um, you know, kind of what you're up to right now. Um, you had mentioned, um, you know, teaching, and um, both my parents are teachers, and I, and, you know, couldn't think of a better profession. Um, any kind of stories or feelings from that um, that you've kind of had on this, on this career? Well, it was the career that I always wanted, um, except I dropped out of high school. <laughs> so that kind of put a big roadblock <laughs> into my career path. Um, I didn't drop out of high school because I was dumb or having trouble or anything like that. Like I dropped out of high school for pretty much purely social reasons. Um, you know, I was a misfit. I was in punk rock. Um, I think actually at that point when I was 15, I was a skinhead. So I, (laughs) so I wasn't the most popular kid in school. And, uh, but so you know, I kind of was just like, I can't take this anymore. My parents had moved to the suburbs as well, which was a big problem for me. I wasn't really doing very well there. And so I moved back to the city, um, 16 years old, high school dropped out. And I was pretty much like, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to be a teacher. What can I be? Um, and so there were only two things I knew how to do. I was like, I think I can write okay. And I can sort of play guitar. And so I just took those two things and then kind of did my best with them for the next 20 years. Um, and I did okay. <laughs> you know, like I, I, I'm amazed actually at, at how well that worked out for me. 
but um, in 2005 or six or so, I started to kind of feel at the end of my rope a little bit with, I knew that music was just, I didn't want to do it for a living anymore. Um, I went on a tour with Gratitude, actually. I played for a couple months with them. And uh, and I remember that tour, I kind of called like, you know, the moment of reckoning tour, where it was like, I'll know after this tour if I really want to ever be on tour again. <laughs> and I got off that tour and I was like, I really don't ever want to be on tour again. So uh, that was that. And then it was just like, okay, well, I'm coming back. Um, what am I going to do? And it took a while to actually get uh, the courage, I think, to go back to school. But um, interestingly enough, I was having uh, a conversation about this with Alan Cage from Quicksand. Alan. And, uh, and so Alan's one of my best friends. And, uh, you know, we talk about life a lot. And, uh, and I think he was also kind of going through something at his job where he was like, you know, I, I, I could totally teach math. And I was like, I could totally teach English. I was like, let's do it. That's awesome. Let's go to to school. So he's like, yeah, let's do it. And then he never signed up and I did. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, so I was like, well, whatever, I'm going to do it. And so I, you know, I started from scratch in college when I was 33. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it was really crazy. And, um, that was a really bizarre experience, but it was also fairly, uh, helpful because, you know, I was about to, you know, I was was going back to school to enter a a potential career in which I would be in school with kids this age. Um, and what's kind of great about being cryogenically frozen is that um, they all thought I was their age. Oh, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> so I never felt like the weird old guy in the class. Although whenever I would like participate in class, people would always be like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was like, uh, I remember actually my first year, this girl had, was really like, I could tell she was crushing on me. And she finally kind of like said something to me. And I was like, oh my God, like you're barking up the tree, wrong tree for so many reasons. You have no idea. (laughs) This is a different tree. (laughs) This is a different tree. You know, and I was like, number one, I seriously am probably old enough to be your dad. Number two, like I'm gay. Um, and she was like, you know, she was a little embarrassed, but she took it well and, and we, we were, we were friends, but it was cool. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I, I finished my undergrad in three years. I just went straight and just went for it. And, uh, and then I started my master's and just barreled through that. And so now I, I, I wound up teaching in, at the college level. Um, I'm going to probably start, uh, applying for PhD programs, um, at the end uh, or at the beginning of next year and start doing that because I just figured, you know, like I waited this long, I might as well just kill it, go all the way through, get the highest possible degree I possibly can get. Um, And there's something, you know, kind of cool and, and middle fingerish about it, you know, like being a high school dropout one minute. Like the last time I played with Texas, the reason I was a high school dropout and now I am a college lecturer. I love that. 
you know, and that was just in six years, uh, six year window. So there's something kind of great about that. And I think there's also like, you know, you, everyone, I think of us, every one of us still has like some baggage from their, uh, teenage rebellion. Right. And, uh, and I remember that there were teachers at my high school when I was dropping out who, who gave me that whole, like, you'll never be anything line. And, uh, and so it's nice to just be like, wow, my life has been really amazing since I left high school. I'm really happy that this all worked out. And I hope that, it, you know, you know, thinking about talking to these people who said that to me, that I'm just like, I really hope that the last, you know, 30 years have worked out as well for you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, it's funny, Norman. I, I see a similarity, uh, and I don't know if you ever thought about this, in the song structure of Texas the Reason and your life. Cause you, because you're, you didn't do verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. You, you're doing different, you know, you're doing the bridge first, and then you dropped out, but then you're going back to school. Now, you kind of did it in a different way, which is nothing wrong. So you both... You had an epic song, and you've had an epic life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm definitely look. I mean, I definitely am one of these people who will tell you there is no um, set way to do that, things. Not just that there is no set way to do things, but that there is no. I think that people get caught up in this thing of what am I going to do for the rest of my life. That's something that I hear so many people say, and I'm definitely the person who's going to say, you don't have to make that decision. You can change your mind at any time. You can always go back and do something different at any time. I mean, I was at a New Year's party a year ago, and I'm talking to this guy who worked in the fashion industry. And, you know, he was 40-something, and he was like, I'm trapped. I can't do anything else. And I was like, you're in the fashion industry. Let's look at Tim Dunn. The guy is like 70 years old. And, you know, he reinvented himself completely. You know, he went from just being like a college you know, a professor of sorts to, you know, a media mogul and, you know, a CEO of Liz Claiborne. Like, I mean, come on, man. Like, and you can do whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do it. You don't have to make these decisions for the rest of your life. And I think that fucked me up even with Texas is the reason back in the day. Like, I think that, you know, uh, I thought about this band as the rest of my life. And I think it put a, an undue pressure on us that definitely affected the way I treated the band, that definitely affected our interpersonal relationships, and that definitely had something to do with flaming out so fast. And maybe if I didn't have that perspective, our story would be a lot different. It's it's such a good way. I mean, it's totally true. It's just that, you know, people are like, oh, I can't wait for Friday or whatever. It's like, well, what about, what are you doing right now? You know, like what's, what do you, what do you, what are you connecting to right now? Because that's what's happening. It's not yesterday. It's not tomorrow. It's right now. Um, And I just don't think like that anymore. I mean, you know, even with academia, I love academia. I love that, you know, that I can be in a profession where like my job is to think and help other people think. That's amazing to me. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, like, well, this is it. Now, this is the rest of my life. Because I really don't know. I can only kind of just do what, you know, follow my news now. <laughs> do what turns me on right now. And be happy doing that. And, you know, if in the future something else happens where music calls me back or all of a sudden I decide I'm going to be a lion tamer <laughs> or whatever it is, 
I'm totally prepared to do that. I'm totally down. I'm not going to miss out on that opportunity. And I think that this also might be coming from the perspective of somebody who was hit by a tow truck and survived. <laughs> yes, I read that in no. an article, which I had, I didn't, I don't, I didn't remember, and I feel horrible. I was like, "Wow, I forgot about this." Like that, that obviously puts a lot of things in perspective quickly. <laughs> my life, my life, very much changed in October of 2003, and and I think that so much about my life changed. So much about my point of view and, and my worldview changed at that time. So. Um, this is probably just, you know, it's part of the tip of the iceberg in terms of like the things you think about when you can't move for like six months. Yes. <laughs> wow. Well, I just think I, I love how positive you are. And um, I, I think I've, I've a lot of these, you know, talks, I I get a lot out of it. Either I learn about things and or I, you know, hear about a, a song I didn't hear about. But I think with you, Norm, I just, I've seen such a great perspective on things, um, and just, you know, knowledge, um, on a lot of stuff that, uh, I didn't really see that way. So that was really awesome. It's always ongoing. <laughs> I may listen to this, you know, in next year and be like, man, I didn't know shit. Well, <laughs> then we'll just, we'll, we'll just have to do a follow-up. <laughs> All right. We'll, 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 maybe, maybe the next time I get hit by a tow truck, I'll have some updated No, please. No. Or, or, or when you decide to step out in front of the bus. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, actually, I swear to God I did not step out in front of that tow truck on purpose. <laughs> I awesome. had the right of way. He came at me. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, well, Norm, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. I mean, your zine and all the music stuff that you've done has shaped, I think, a ton of bands and continues to be mentioned time and time again. And I think I speak for everyone listening that, you know, please don't stop making music or creating. Um, I think each time it's given something memorable and you, you can't really ask for anything better than that. Well, I do. I mean, you know, if I can take this opportunity also just to kind of thank everybody, including yourself. But also, I mean, just, again, like last week was really overwhelming um for me and for the for the entire band really i think like we were having our own mini panic attacks about it it, it was um you know it's just it's 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 interesting because it's not just this feeling of gratitude for the people who have been around since back then but it's also that feeling of like just marvel at the people who weren't around then and who just connected with the band in some way uh you know since then and you know, I can actually kind of, um, if you'd indulge me for a second, hang on. I'm, I'm gonna, there was the other night I was reading the internet as I often do. And, uh, I somehow stumbled across this guy's Tumblr. Uh, and I found this post that he wrote the night of the urban plaza show. And it's just a short, like three sentence post but it really like killed me. Um, and you know, if there was an email address on his website, I probably would email him, but this is what he wrote. So the title of his post was tonight was pretty surreal. And then he says, Texas is the reason was phenomenal. Words cannot describe how overwhelmingly incredible it was to see them live in my lifetime. This is a moment that I would love to relive over and over again without a doubt. And that was like the entire post. And when I'm reading his bio, I'm just like, you know, he's 21 years old. Wow. He was, you know, he was five years old when that record came out. <laughs> you yes. know, like, 
it's just this real feeling of just like, I love that, that music is able to do that. It's able to make these kind of, you know, uh, intergenerational connections like this. And that, uh, and, and that it's, 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 you know, even if he had never seen us, it, we're still this real thing to him. And that's, just the fact that he was, he was able to see it live and to be a part of it as it was happening, as the music was being made, like it sounds corny. I get it. But you know, for me, this is what it's all about. Like that, that's the kind of reason, that's the reason why we got back together. And, and that's, that's the reason why, um, this is meaningful to us and why, you know, we'll never disrespect kind of the memory of, of what Stan is or was because, there are people who feel that way about it and that's